Um, so the last few nights we've, or the last few weeks, we've been going through the story of David's uh, kind of rapid decline and Absalom moving in to take over the kingdom. And just want to mention real quick before we get too far into this, that if you do have a question or anything like that, you can put it in the chat window. Um, you can also open up your microphone too and, and interrupt me if you need to, but, um, but you know, type it, type the question in the chat window, uh, is probably the easiest way. And, um, and I'll get to it as I can, uh, in tonight's lesson. So particularly if you have any questions or something wasn't clear, I don't have the kind of verbal feedback cues that I normally have in person. So it's really helpful to have, you know, somebody there asks a question, uh, so that I know what wasn't clear or what was clear. So, um, that would really help. Anyway, um, as, as we're thinking about uh, what's happened over the last few weeks here, uh, we'll re- you'll remember that Absalom has been moving into the, the kingdom, has been moving into Jerusalem up from Hebron and chased David off. And J- David uh, ran to um, the, basically ran east of the promised land, crossed over the Jordan River and was out in Mahanaim. And uh, he is really more or less hiding out there. And on his way out, obviously, he placed uh, he ha- he still had some strategy into how he would um, save himself or save his family and save the kingdom from Absalom. And that was to place a spy Hushai inside the the, the kingdom. And so Hushai posed as as one who uh, would serve Absalom. And basically, he was a plant for David. He was going to tell David all the inner workings of the kingdom and also poorly advise Absalom so that Absalom might uh, take his advice and in taking his advice, end up in his demise. He does that uh, by providence of the Lord. He takes the advice of Hushai. Hushai ends up relaying enough information to David that David is aware. It buys David some time so that David can gather his men together and, um, and, and basically end up in the defeat of Absalom. So chapter 17 ends with David arriving in Mahanaim and Gentiles are coming out to serve him and they're giving to him food and provision and really he's significantly aided by the Gentiles. And as David prepares for battle, David's organizing his troops in groups. And you can see based on the number of troops that he has, that there's some time has gone by that Hushai's plan and David's plan to buy some time has, has worked. And David has a sizable army at this point. And it seems that all of David's work with the Gentiles in the past has paid off. And a lot of the Gentiles are now helping him and providing a lot for his army. And so eventually uh, Absalom decides to go to battle and they, he uh, you know, leads the battle out and um, go, meets in um, across the river uh, east of the promised land. And the battle basically is, is fought inside the forest of Ephraim which, as we saw in the text last week, played to the advantage of David and his men. Uh, as the biblical author tells us, the forest consumed more of, uh, of Absalom's men than David's men did. You know, So it, it seemed like the, the, the forest was a big aid to David and less so to Absalom's people. But um, basically, the, the, the battle was, the, most of the battle was fought there. In the process, Absalom is riding on his donkey, uh, not paying attention, texting, and and he runs up under a tree. The donkey keeps going, and Absalom ends up caught in the tree. And um, uh, some men find him. They don't want to kill him because he's the king's son. And David had requested specifically that Absalom not be harmed. Joab it appears as though he has seen David as weak, decides to go about uh, killing him anyway. And so he goes to where Absalom is hanging in the tree, spears him, takes him down and gathers his men around. And they all 
kill Absalom and they lay him to rest and they pile stones. They essentially stone him um, by piling stones on top of his dead body in, and, and bury him in the ground, exiled from the promised land. So he is, uh, you know, he is cast out of the promised land permanently and not even buried there. And so the where we left off in verse uh, 18 and or so is that it is Absalom is dead and David does not yet know. Joab has killed him and uh, Joab and his men have killed Absalom and David does not yet know that Absalom is dead. And so that's where we are tonight. David is going to find out this news and the way he finds out is, is kind of interesting and sort of strange and sort of tells us a lot about some of the people that are around David, I think. But, um, you know, Joab knows that obviously that the, that the outcome of the battle and he knows that the news that is going to come to David is not going to be good news. David doesn't, we've seen in the past, doesn't really handle good news very well or bad, bad news very well. He, he, um, he's, you know, he's going to get upset. He's asked that Absalom's life be spared. And Joab has ignored that command with the rest of his people. This is going to be a theme that is going to play out for the next few chapters. I say theme, maybe more like a storyline that's going to play out for the next few chapters is this relationship between Joab and David. And it's actually going to extend into Solomon's reign. And so we're going to see that all the way into first Kings, or we'll take a little bit more time as we've taken a lot of time on David. We've spent a lot of, a lot of time on David. We'll spend a a good bit of time on Solomon as well. And then things will speed up after that. But, um, but we'll see some of this play out even into Solomon's reign. So Joab knows that this is not going to be good news. And so he sends a Cushite to go and, and report the, the news to David. Now, a Cushite would be someone from like Sudan, if you can imagine Sudan, where that is just south of Egypt, or uh, Nubia, which is, just, which is just north of Sudan and south of Egypt. So in between Sudan and Egypt, if you've got your African geography about you, um, it, it, the land of Cush is, is right in there. And so Joab sends a Cush out. Why? Uh, probably because he's expendable. Um, as, as crass as that is to probably say about another human being, he, it would, you know, who knows what David is going to do to the person that, that comes along. Sometimes the person that comes along telling him the news ends up dead. Usually that's because they have claimed that they killed somebody or something, as we saw a few cha- a while back early on in, in, in 2 Samuel, um, the, the person that reached out their hand and, and killed Saul or said they killed Saul ended up dead. And so it, it's, it's possible that David strikes uh, the person who comes to bring the bad news to him. And so for whatever reason, Uh, he sends this Cushite instead of one of his own. So let's read that in just 19 to 23 here in 2 Samuel chapter 18. He says, Then uh, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. And Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Okay, now remember uh, Ahimaaz, uh, the son of Zadok, was one of the ones that was appointed with carrying the news out to David when he was, um, when he was exiled to begin with. And so Ahimaaz 
probably understands that his job is to run and tell David news. And I would also assume that Ahmaya's assumes that he's going to be rewarded at some point for his work in carrying all kinds of news to David. And why do I think that? Because of what Ahamayas is going to do when he gets to David, uh, which is sort of humorous. I find it humorous, but I have kind of a sick and twisted sense of humor. So, um, <laughs> so uh, Ahamayas wanted to be the messenger that carries the news to, to Joab. And at first, obviously, Joab refuses and he's going to send the Cushite. But then Ahimaaz keeps pestering him. I want to go give David the news. I am the news carrier, so please let me go. And it seems like Joab is like, fine, your life is in your hand. And so Joab grants Ahimaaz his request and sent him with the Cushite. So, um, you know, the Ahimaaz is off on his own way. Now, it says here at the very end that although the the Cushite left first, Ahmayas actually beats him back to where David actually is in Mahanaim. We assume probably still in Mahanaim. Um, Ahmayas beats him back and it says, because he went by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So the location of Mahanaim in the deep canyon of the Jabbok serves to explain how Ahamayas, and I'm going to show you a map in just a second, Ahamayas, the son of Zadok, outran uh, the Cushite. So what we what we know is that, and I'll show you on the map in just a second. In fact, let me just go to the map real quick, and then I'll come back to this. Um, you can see the forest of Ephraim down there below Gilead, uh, and then you've got this sort of circle of paths around it. Uh, It seems as though this little orange path going from the North Flag all the way down to Mahanaim uh, is the path that the Cushite took, which takes him through the forest of Ephraim. That's what we would assume based on the way the text is is written in the locations of people, that the Cushite would be going through the forest of Ephraim. But then uh, 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 Ahamayim, sorry, Yep. Uh, <laughs> Ahamayas, uh, sorry, lost the name for a second, runs down the plain, uh, down sort of the, uh, over here on the, the left-hand side, just east of the Jordan River, where it's flat country, and then up the uh, the Jabok River, which is where that green line cuts back over to Mahanaim. And so he travels up there, which is a longer route, but he doesn't have to travel through the forest. And so what it means, what it equals is him getting there first. And so the Cushite is going through the difficult terrain of the forest of Ephraim. And uh, Ahamayas is going through uh, the Jordan Plain and then up the Jadok River, which is relatively flat country, even though it's down uh, rivers. And so he's able to just barely beat out uh, the Cushite as he gets to David. And sure enough, he, he does that and still doesn't have to deliver the bad news. So he gets to David, he barely outruns the Cushite. And when he gets to David, when he's within yelling distance, he hollers out all is well to David. So I want to read this here in 2 Samuel 18, 24, all the way to 30. This is so, so very strange. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamayas, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahamayas cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord, your God 
who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, it is, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahamiah has answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. So when David <laughs> asks Ahimaaz, now does Ahimaaz know what's happened to Absalom? Well, there's no question that he knows. He absolutely knows. It's the reason that Joab wouldn't let him go in the first place, was that Absalom was dead and that it, what he was going to have to deliver was bad news. And so he absolutely knows that, uh, that, that Absalom is dead, but he sort of plays it off like he didn't know or he didn't see it, or maybe he kind of plays a little word game here where he's trying to, trying to not give him the bad news by telling him a, kind of a half-truth that maybe he didn't witness it with his own two eyes, but he does certainly know that, uh, that Absalom is dead, and yet he uh, obfuscates the truth, and perhaps he even knows that the Cushite is coming along, I'll let the Cushite take the fall for the bad news, and I'll be the one to, t to tell him the good news, which is most likely the case, thinking, obviously, that he's going to probably be handsomely rewarded, and the ones who deliver the bad news don't usually end up on the, the winning end of things. And so he protects himself. As, as David asks him the question, he protects himself and won't, let him, won't give him the whole news, and he says that he only saw a great commotion about the time that he was being sent off, but he doesn't know, really know what it was about. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, maybe. I know that he, they had him surrounded, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not really entirely sure what took place. So Ahimaaz couldn't bring himself to tell David the bad news. The Cushite, however, does deliver the whole truth. And so we see that in 31 to 33. He says, and behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. That's old news, Cushite. So the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he, and as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So here we get this really crushing reality of... Uh, the story is that this is a good thing that Absalom's assault on David was an assault on the kingdom of God. And for that, his cancerous attack against the kingdom of God had been eradicated. However, the double edge of the sword is that it came at great cost to David. And we're going to see in just a minute, I think even a little bit more of this, but you notice that, you know, David is grieved and you have to remember this is a punishment to David. And so, I think I want to go back and revisit that and just toward the end here in just a little bit. But um, David is, is wishing that he had died instead of Absalom. And no doubt anybody who is a parent can at least uh, sympathize with where David is coming from, knowing that even when your child is acting foolishly and even when they're doing what's awful and terrible for them, and though you are against them in that sense, you can never be totally against them. 
They may be rebellious and they may be sinful and they may be doing really bad things. And you might be against what they are doing, but you can't really be against them personally. It's near impossible for a parent to be in that position. And probably David much more so knowing that, well, it's really his actions that started to produce some of this, some of these results. But the bottom line is Absalom's assault on God's king and trying to really, I mean, usurp the throne from not only David, but the line that God had chosen. Remember, God's chosen Solomon to be king. And whether Absalom knows that or not, I have no idea. But um, but for one, for whatever reason, he's decided to usurp God's king and take over the throne and cut both David and Solomon out. And that's an assault on God himself. And so God is going to be sure to put an end to Absalom. And uh, and it comes at, at, at great cost to David. And so David is distraught. He's He's really lost over this. And as you can imagine, David's getting older and um, something happens to people in old age. You know, it's sort of you kind of get emotional and and a lot more (laughs) sympathetic. You see this with grandparents. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the first time my mom witnessed me spank my son. uh, And she she said, Michael, you don't have to spank him. That is the same woman that when I was four, I remember being swatted with the fly swatter until the head came flying off and I just got the wire across my rear end. And I reminded her of that, right? But as she gets old, she sort of gets soft and, and, and emotional. And it seems like maybe David has probably gotten into that spot too. But David is distraught over, over what's happened and he is, he's grieving. And um, David's grief, it turns out, is going to spread throughout the army. And it sort of has a way of turning this victory of defeating Absalom into what kind of turns into a defeat. It's like both of these people that have come to give uh, David really good news and help him see that we've, we've defeated Absalom ends up in the king not being happy at the law, at the victory, but distraught over his own personal loss. And so it, it, it has a way of bringing disgrace upon uh, the nation and all the people that fought for David. And so we, we see a little bit of this point made in chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 8. Let's read that. It was told... Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in, uh, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house and uh, into, into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your, your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and kindly speak to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So Joab 
Joab is, has been with David for a long time. There's no, there's probably not a, 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 a commander of an army that has a closer relationship with David than Joab does to the point where Joab can be presumptuous sometimes and take matters into his own hands, maybe because of his comfort level with David, maybe because he perceives David as weak, which I think is, is pretty likely. Um, and, and maybe because he sees himself as having tons of authority and knows that David would never touch him or so he thinks. And so Joab goes to him and talks about the demoralization of the troops. And you notice that the rebuke that he gives to David is very sharp and very direct, such that not many people, if anybody, would ever tell talk to David in this kind of way. And it, it gives you the impression that he has this sort of growing confidence that he could run the country better than David. And again, this is going to be part of the story that continues to play out as this goes on, where Joab grows in confidence and actually begins to take more matters into his own hands to the point where he really is confident that he can take over control. And remember when I, we kind of gave a, a, a forward looking glimpse into the, into Joab's future where he's not going to back Solomon when Solomon comes to the throne, um, but is instead going to, going to back uh, someone else. And so, uh, so Joab is, is, a, you know, a very forthright person and speaks with the kind of confidence that, that gives you um, sort of a, an a, allusion to what is coming in the future for Joab and the rift that's going to grow between jo Joab and, and David. And although he thinks David isn't taking note of what I'm doing, David isn't taking note. He's not paying attention to where I am uh, and, and the, the decisions that I'm making. Uh, it seems that David very much is, but it won't be until David's deathbed that we actually hear this from David's own mouth. And then we see this come to fruition, unfortunately. Okay. So here's this Joab coming before David and just, he's telling him outright, look, he, what you're doing when you're mourning your son like this, you're sending a message to the rest of the troops and you're telling them that you love Absalom more than you love them. And they have, they have conquered, um, they have, uh, defeated Absalom. They have defeated many of Absalom's men. They have killed all them. They have fought at great risk to their own life for you. And when you're acting like this, you're basically giving them the message that you don't care what they've done, that their lives are expendable. The only person's life that you really care about is Absalom. And to an extent, that's got to be true. I mean, you notice that David doesn't, uh, he doesn't ask about the lives of his own men. He certainly, remember, he's told do not go with us into battle, which is why probably we see him at the gates of Mahanaim at the very beginning when the men come running to David to present to him the news. They, they come running to him. He's sitting uh, at the gate, and it says he's sitting in the gate or he's sitting between the gates. Um, if you can imagine in your mind, I look for a picture, a good picture of this, and I, I couldn't really find one, but... It, sometimes you'll see this in even archaeological discoveries around a city. You'll have this large, uh, you know, wall built, a fort, fortification built around a city, and you'll have an entry gate, and then you'll have a, a space between the wall, and then you'll have another gate. And there, sometimes it's a large space, and sometimes it's a very small space. But it, anyway, it'll be a, a thick fortification. People would hide in there. There may even be people that live uh, in there and have houses and, and fortifications and, and, uh, and barracks and things like that in the wall. Um, various ways they could be built. In fact, if you go, uh, now that I think about it, if you go to the Tower of London, I believe it is, you can even see something much like this in London. But, um, but essentially, the, the men of the city, the elders of the city, would sit they're at the city gate, and that would be sort of the, I guess you would say, the judgment seat of, uh, for the people is that they would come there to uh, you know, either receive judgment or um, conflict resolution or you know, all kinds of things that they would receive there. That would also be where the, the elders, the important men of the city, 
would sit. So David sitting there, and remember, he was supposed to be sitting there to send people onto the front lines. And so he is interacting with everybody that comes in and out of the city, um, probably building some sort of almost like recruitment mechanism for people to go out into battle. And so he's sitting there at the very beginning, and that gives some sense to the people that David is in charge, that he's with it, that he understands what's going on, that he's running the show. And so when he is demoralized, he goes up to his chamber and he is weeping over the death of Absalom. And so it's, it's Joab that gets him to move down back down to the gate and go there and communicate to the people by sitting at the gate again, that you're, you're back in charge and you're not, um, I guess the best way of saying it would be weak. Um, and so Joab advised David that what he needed to do was he needed to act and he reinforced this sense of urgency by saying that you have today, and he's he's kind of reiterating over and over, today you've done this. You've covered your your you're covered with shame the faces of all your servants, and um, you need to do something about it. You need to to act on this, you need to change your behavior. And if not, he gives him sort of this ultimatum, and it comes across from the mouth of Joab as a threat that if you don't do this, and maybe Joab is just pointing to the natural recourse, but we know David's, I mean, Joab's, uh, you know, actually going to sort of uh, mount up a, a, a little bit of a insurgence. And so um, later on, so it, it kind of reading, knowing what happens to Joab later, it sort of comes across as a threat that David's going to end up abandoned and isolated that all of your men are going to desert you today and none of them are going to stick with you. And so um, David goes out to the gate of Mahanaim and the men begin coming before him. And what we're going to see next week and on is uh, David uh, exercising justice and moving back to his, um, his you know, throne. But essentially sitting at the gate here is that symbol that David has returned to his royal office. Um, I mean, this is the very premise of elders all going all the way back from the very beginning is that the elders of the city of uh, what the, the temple of the synagogue, uh, the, even the church, as they gain that position, the idea is that they are shepherding the people. And um, that, that's always been the case uh, for elders. And so th- that's the case here. That's what he's doing by, by returning to the gate. He's putting himself in that position as sort of the head of all of them that he's back in his royal office. And he's, um, you know, he's uh, adjudicating, I guess you would say, the matters of the city. And so, um, but, you know, with all of that, so, so that's obviously the story. But then there's, you know, some some broader things that we have to keep in mind about all of this as we go. Uh, and I think that that help us to take in the whole the story as a whole. We, we've told I've told this in sort of, you know, episodic um, uh, tellings, I guess, I guess you would say. But we have to at the same time zoom out and think about. The whole thing as something God is actually doing. um, And and this may be the hardest thing to to keep in mind as you read through the Old Testament in particular. I mean, really the whole Bible, but but particularly this this run through the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel, uh, even, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, it is keeping in mind that this is a story God is developing. And um, so, so it's helpful to, to keep that perspective. And normally the biblical author will clue you in by just outright telling you what God is up to, what he's doing and interpreting God's actions. You just have to pay attention to it. And he's told us a number of times what God is doing in this particular set of episodes that's happening to David now. Um, Obviously, there's a deeper dimension to David's grief than just 
uh, sadness over this insurrectionist named Absalom. Uh, yes, the insurrectionist is his son, so there's there's a depth to that, but there's even more depth, it seems, to his um, sadness than just that. Uh, you'll remember that Second um, Samuel 17, verse 14, uh, that is in your verse packet there. It says, uh, and Absalom and all the men of Israel uh, said, the counsel of Hushai, the Archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So this is what I mean. The biblical author gives you, he just, he tips the cards and he tells you right out what God is up to. And, and you have to kind of open your eyes to pay attention to when the biblical authors clue you into that. But when they do, underline it if you have to. Highlight it if you can, because they, it, it helps you to frame the whole story, because that actually does some really important things. First, 2 Samuel 17, 14 tells us that the, the control of the the this overall story of Absalom's rebellion is, is uh, God. So second Samuel 17, 14 controls how we even think about Absalom's demise, that this is all by the hand of God. Okay. Well then that clues us into an even bigger part of the story that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 12. And that passage controls our understanding of the narrative of everything that, excuse me, everything that happens in the narrative following David's affair with Bathsheba. Remember 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 12 says, now therefore, uh, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son, outside uh, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So here's the importance of zooming out and just keeping track every time the biblical author just tells you what God is going to do or what God is doing behind all of this. Is it tells us that the demise of Absalom, the confrontation with Absalom, Absalom's insurrection, uh, Absalom's taking of David's wives, Absalom's rebellion against David, hatred of his father, uh, David being driven out of Jerusalem, and ultimately Joab's betrayal of David and killing of Absalom is David's fault. And it's God's punishment to David for what he's done. So what, what, that helps us to see what, what it helps us to do is unpack the, the emotions that David is feeling right now and why he responds the way he does, which may even escape the notice of Joab. Joab may not even understand it totally, but you, the reader have an insight into David's heart that few people in the story have. In fact, probably no one in the story has. That you understand the complexities of what's going on in David's mind. Because remember, in 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 12, David is told that by Nathan from the mouth of God himself. So David knows that all of this that's happening with Absalom is directly because of his, of his action with Bathsheba. Every single thing has come to fruition 
and it's all been his fault. So when you hear David say, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What do you think that means? What do you think he means when he says that? He's wishing that the Lord would have just killed him for his sin instead of punishing Absalom for it or instead of him having to go through judgment. Because to be honest with you, to endure the discipline of the Lord as his child, especially when you're in the midst of it, you would often feel like death is better than life. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it's been that severe, where you've clearly felt the disciplinary hand of God on you, but there's no doubt you feel in that moment or you can feel that death would be better than life. And David is feeling that way right now, that the discipline would is far worse. Watching my son die, watching my son rebel against me, that's far worse than him just striking me dead right then and there. But the, the, the twist is, and, and we know this even as Christians, as New Testament Christians, that the discipline that David is undergoing is one, because he is God's king, two, because he is God's son, and three, because God loves him and cares for him. And the kind of indiscretions that David made with Bathsheba, he doesn't make again. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that we're told. And, and, it, and it's the discipline of the Lord brought to him that helps keep him on the straight and narrow and helps keep him in that dependent relationship on the Lord. And which is exactly where the Lord wants his children is in that relationship of, of dependence. Um, so it's David's guilt, it seems, that inflames his grief. You can understand his grief because you understand the guilt as you've gone all the way back to chapter 12. And, uh, you know, Nathan had told David at the time that he would not die and that his son would die as a punishment. That was in Second uh, Samuel 12, 14, where he says, Nevertheless, because of this, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Uh, but when David saw this, that his uh, uh, servants were whispering together, he asked, is the child dead? And, and they said, he is dead. And so, you know, it, it came to fruition and David was, was spared from death, but his son did die. Then we saw uh, right after that, Amnon was murdered after he had raped Tamar uh, and Absalom had killed Amnon for the rape of his sister. And now Absalom has also perished. And David knew that his sin was what was the thing, the catalyst that set the sword loose on his house. And that was what the, the Lord had used. That was the catalyst that the Lord had used to set the sword loose on David's house. Um, so I'm going to go to the next slide, but that's Amnon and his sin are the last, are the last two blanks. Um, so as we look at this story uh, as, a, as a whole, and, and we're coming toward the twilight, although there's one big, really uh, big episode uh, of David, actually a, a misstep, a miscalculation of David, a sin of David still, come, still to come. But we're coming toward the twilight of David's life, and we see that we've gone really chapter by chapter through First and Second Samuel so far. And they've, they've shown us that, you know, as the anointed king, David is a suffering king. He suffers from the very beginning, even when he's pure. He, he is chased into the wilderness. He is, uh, he is refined in a furnace um, because the Lord has a tremendous undertaking set for him and he tries him in a furnace first. He, he, he purifies him. He really does. And, um, and he, spend, he spends a lot of his time on the run and running from a king who wants to kill him. And a, a lot of his time is spent suffering. But here, he's shedding tears and he's suffering over his own guilt, which is a, 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 a 
pretty drastic change, um, you know, from, from what it has been from the beginning, although he suffered the whole way through. But it, rem- it, it reminds us, I think, as we, we watch the kingdom of God at the hands of men uh, falter because men, it seems, are sinful and cannot escape the effects of Eden, uh, of the fall. It reminds us, though, that there is, and, and Isaiah tells us this, that there is a descendant from David coming who is also a man of sorrows. But instead of having his own grief to bear, he bears our grief and he carries our sorrows. It's our sins that he actually, that Jesus actually ends up taking to the cross. And we see that in Isaiah 53, where he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And so the turn in Jesus is that, he is a man of sorrows. He does bear griefs. He does carry sorrows, but they're not his own. That he actually, he actually has no griefs or sorrows that he has to care uh, to carry, and yet he volunteers to carry those griefs and sorrows uh, to the cross and suffer at the hands of men uh, for the sins of of his people, so that he might save his people from their sins. Questions? Comments? Thoughts? Reflections? Lamentations? Weepings and wailings and woes? Nothing? All right. Well, I see no questions in the box. So I'm assuming Larry gives me the thumbs up. All is well. Um, So the next few weeks, we're going to see David make some, uh, commit some sins and, and uh, again, be brought to grief over them and, uh, and, and die. And then we're into Solomon. So, um, I still have to plot out as far as how many weeks that's going to take us to get through to the end of David's story, but we'll speed up just a little bit and, um, get into Solomon. Solomon's got a whole new kettle of fish that we get to take. And then when we get to first Kings and second Kings, it gets really interesting because, it's not just really focused on one character. It's like the whole kingdom goes crazy. So that'll be awesome. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I'm going to close in, in prayer. And uh, yes, Larry says, have a blessed week, everyone. I'm going to close in prayer. Millie's nephew. I'm going to continue to pray for him. Um, and um and then the presidential election obviously coming up. Oh boy. Uh, some things that we just, sometimes it's hard to even think about. So let's pray for those and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to read your word, to reflect on uh, David's life, to even see just the straightforward, unfiltered, uh, you know, not holding anything back story of, of, the sin of someone that we in our day revere as someone who's wanted to do your will, chase after your own heart and, and yet sinned tremendously and was punished and grieved and endured your discipline. And, and that too is a tremendous encouragement uh, to us because we know that you discipline your own and that you love your children. And um, that's the reason you discipline us. And so we look at David and we watch him endure discipline and we are encouraged at our own discipline. And yet simultaneously, I pray, convicted for our, our own sins, the things that uh, are foolish, foolishness, the times where we pursue unrighteousness and perhaps sometimes we deserve your discipline and we don't receive it 
and um, and it's a wake up call to us. And uh, I pray that as that conviction sets in on our hearts, as we think about our own sins, that you would um, give us the comfort of knowing uh, confession and repentance. Pray that you would grant that gift to us, that we would, uh, uh, that our heart to be open to you and that we would trust you uh, with our sin, uh, with knowing the full depths of it, that we would own it to you in prayer, knowing that uh, you already know it all and Christ already died for it, that we have nothing to hide um, and that we can be free uh, in that. So I pray that you would convince us of that in our hearts when we are not convinced of it um, and uh, that you would free us from that burden that we carry so often. And um, we are, so we are grateful for this, this testimony to us. We also pray for Millie's nephew as he uh, has a long, long road ahead and his family as well as they have also a long, long road ahead. Uh, that you would give them peace and encouragement and endurance to make it uh, help when necessary. Um, we also pray for our country as we, enter into uh, the beginnings even uh, of a presidential election and a season that's going to be fraught with uh, just us being sick to our stomach a lot and rolling our eyes and, and really being sort of afraid of, of what might happen. And I pray that our fears would be assuaged and that we would be confident instead that we dwell securely as citizens of your kingdom first and foremost before anything else. And that we're free from the worldly concerns that plague everyone else in this world. And we pray that our assurance, our calm demeanor, our confidence, our smile when, um, when, things, are, uh, when things should be chaotic for us, our ability to grieve with those who are grieving uh, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing would be an appeal to the people around us, that they would see our testimony and our faith and that they would desire to have what we have, the calm assurance of being citizens of your kingdom. Uh, We pray that would pervade our testimony in Jesus' name. Amen.